You are listening to Soul Searching on KSFR with Rabbi Neil Amswich from Temple Beth Shalom. Soul Searching is a journey where I engage with faith leaders and academics to explore deep questions of meaning, questions that all of us ask at some point in our lives, such as, why are we here? What is right and wrong? Is there good and evil? Is truth relative or absolute? Is there life after death? And to help us in our journey this evening, we're very honoured to be joined by Reverend Gail Mariner from Unitarian Universalist Santa Fe. Gail, welcome. It's a delight to be here. So some faith traditions have a very set line between right and wrong in terms of religious practice. Your community, from what I can see from the outside, seems to be the opposite of that. Would that be a fair assessment? That would be a very fair assessment. Unitarian Universalism is what's called a non-creedal tradition, which means that we believe that each individual is charged with discerning his or her own spiritual path. And we come together in community and draw on the full spectrum of religious experience and then negotiate within the community how that is going to be lived out. So, yes, we uh, have a very diverse set of practices within our tradition. So um, if everyone is discerning their own path, is there is there no sense of a right path or is it a right path for that person? So... We have seven principles, and they form sort of the outer boundary of what the path would be. And within that, uh, individual practices vary widely. We are in community, though, because it's really easy for human individuals to sort of go astray and follow their own ego or their own fantasy. And so in conversation with other people, we're better able to discern which paths are life-affirming for the entire group and, in the, entire, and the entire community rather than just those li- paths we think might be life-affirming for our own self. I'm glad you mentioned that because for me, one of the questions I guess originally I, I had was about authority, but, but perhaps more about guidance. Um, how, do we, how do we determine what is right? Um, you know, in some faith traditions, there's very clear authority or guidance. Mm-hmm. You do what the, you know, clergy member says. Um, so, for in your community, is that a sense of everyone together gives that guidance? Is there any voice that is worth more than others in some sense? Okay, so we have we balance two things. Um, the Unitarian part of our name comes from an understanding that there is a unity of God rather than a, a, mis- a multiplicity of God, a unity of God, and that each, is a, each of us is created in likeness to God. We have the capacity within ourselves to recognize and understand um, the holy, however one might broadly define that. And so uh, when we come together in community, We're what's called a congregational polity. We locate our authority in the gathered community. So in all these sparks of the divine come together in covenanted community, that's where we locate our authority. And so, yes, in terms of discernment about how the community should move, the entire community weighs in. Uh, And there's lots of conversation, and it's ultimately decided by a vote (laughs) of the congregation. Um, in terms of an individual deciding their path, 
-hmm. That can be done either in uh, sort of one-on-one discernment or in discernment with a small group. And so I'm starting a series of programs right now to help people do exactly that. They're called Wellspring. And we will be doing sort of group spiritual direction and coaching on spiritual path and spiritual practice and tapping all of our sources. It's it's fascinating for me, especially because when you bring in God's language Mm -hmm. um, and you talk of the unity of God and that we're created in the likeness of God, is that a supernatural God? Is that a transnatural God? Is that God as we under- as anyone wants to understand? Okay, so in a non-creedal tradition, that's a really fair question because I have within my congregation both theists and non-theists. And among my theists, I have those who would understand um, God or the holy very much as someone coming out of a Jewish or Christian tradition might. And I have those who are uh, pantheists and panentheists and polytheists who have a more earth-centered view. So when we talk about being created in likeness to God, um, the translation, there's translation always between different religious traditions and between religion and science. And so we talk about being created out of, of everything. I mean, I talk about being made of stardust and having evolved to consciousness through the matrix of science mm-hmm. as part of being made in likeness to God. So we don't, I don't separate um, human nature from God nature really at all. And I also often frame it in terms of metaphors. Right. Because Be- by definition, the holy or God is something that escapes our human attempts to contain it. And I think this is very helpful because very often, certainly in my tradition, when we talk of being created in the image of God and the likeness of God, there's a wonderful book. Um, it's a, a book of plays for kids. Um, and uh, God cre- is about to create Adam in the Garden of Eden. And God says, I'll create Adam in my likeness. No, three arms is a bit strange. I'll just do two. Um, and it, it's clearly playing on the idea that that this is all metaphor in some sense. Mm -hmm. But then if the metaphor goes from theism to panentheism, polytheism, what what does that metaphor mean in the end? Okay, so the commonality according to, so our our Unitarian side and our Universalist side have slightly different takes on that. So we've been negotiating that for a while. On the Unitarian side, um, our reason, our ability to reason is our faculty that is closest, most akin to the holy. On our universalist side, it's our capacity to love, which is most akin to the source of creation and the nature of reality. And so love and reason Mm -hmm. taken together, I think, pretty much encapsulate uh, how we would frame the spark of the divine that resides in each person. The challenge for me coming from an astrophysics background and and then moving into a religious background is that balance between the emotional, the spiritual and the rational. Mm -hmm. Part of my difficulty with the rational sometimes is that it's actually very often guided by ourselves. It's actually much more biased and emotional than we realize. So how do you balance the, the, the reason with love is it, are they separate or are they sort of woven together? 
I'm not sure that, uh, strictly speaking, there are Unitarian or Universalist historic writings addressing how we balance those two things. As I watch how it plays out in community, mm-hmm. um, the heart-centered folks in my community challenge and balance the head-centered folks in my community. And so this is one of the reasons that we need um, all of us. But then as I read in uh, neuroscience and in philosophy, there's a lot of dialogue right now about the ways that our embodiment um, shapes and guides our reasoning. And so this notion that reason is uh, disconnected and over and apart parallels actually the notion of, of God as disconnected from creation. Um, if you think, you know, so if reason, if love and reason come together mm-hmm. in um, our experience of the holy, love and reason also come together in our experience of the individual human and in our experience of the cosmos, because I don't think there's a separation. One of the uh, Hebrew terms that, that we have um, is yirat shamayim, uh, which is generally taken to be fear of heaven, um, but not fear as in um, as in fear of being told off or fear of authority, but much more a sense of awe. Mm. And, and I hear <clears throat> I hear reason and love, and, and and a lot of love, and the community being held together by the by the seven principles and and the balance of of love. But is there any fear? Is there any sense of is God terrifying? Um, no. For Unitarian Universalists, the Universalist half of our tradition comes out of the Anabaptist reading of the Bible in translation in English, uh, which looked at descriptions of God and said, well, wait a minute, Jesus talks about God as a loving father. No loving parent would damn his children to suffer in hell. Mm-hmm. And so the Universalists then decided, based on the evidence of the, of the text, that there was no hell. Right. And so we come into community and act in the world uh, completely assured that there is no, nothing to fear after death. And so we don't think about it particularly. We don't worry about heaven and hell at all, right. except to the extent that we think our charge is to create heaven on earth mm-hmm. in our time, to the extent that it's humanly possible. And, you know, then the hereafter will take care of itself. And so for some of that, us, that means, okay, we're assured of heaven. For other Unitarian Universalists, we feel that reincarnation is going to be a good thing and will be a step further up the, up the chain. And others just say, well, I don't know what happens next. I'm not going to worry about it. I'm going to worry about the here and now. I'm fascinated by all these different perspectives. How do you hold that together in a service, in liturgy? (laughs) I mean, it's difficult enough in a reform community where we have some, a fair divergence of Mm -hmm. theological perspectives. But what you're talking about is a huge panoply of perspectives. So how do you, how do you do that in a service? Uh, Very mindfully. Uh, Typically, if I am using the specifically theological language, I will provide a translation for those who, just as you've been translating Hebrew tr- terms for me and for our audience, I will translate theological terms for my congregation and whoever else happens to be in the room. And I'll say, when I am talking right now, um, 
about God. I'm going to use the term mystery, and I'm going to use this term, and I'm, you know, and I invite you to choose the language which resonates most effectively for you. When I don't do that, when I don't do the translation, I hear back from whoever felt excluded. Right. You used God and prayer four times in the service today, and you never once talked about, you know, right. so it goes in that, in that way. I'm, I'm intrigued, uh, I guess, for in Jewish circles when we have mitzvah, the idea of mm-hmm. commandment. Um, and sometimes people are very challenged by the idea of if you have a mitzvah, a commandment, you need a commander, mitzvah. And some people will say, I don't feel a commander who is above and beyond. But there is that sense of being pushed, being driven. And and I guess when I was asking about fear, I wasn't necessarily asking about heaven or hell mm-hmm. per se. But the fear of um, or that um, I think it was Rudolf Otto and the idea of the holy talking about mm. God being so the mysterium tremendum. And fascinans, yes. Right. So so. Yes, that is there. That, that sense of awe and wonder experienced somewhere in the course of our lifetimes, sometimes frequently, um, that escapes human language, that is um, emotional and kinesthetic and intellectual, but that we, and that changes us. Uh, but we don't have a single metaphor for it. And the sense is more one of awe and wonder and less one of fear mm. because we're pretty confident that that's a benevolent whatever it is. It's, it's, uh, it supports and upholds life. It affirms the unfolding of the universe. And so we don't have something to fear. This is fascinating so far. We're going to take a quick break. Um, you're listening to Soul Searching with uh, Rabbi Neil Amswich, and my guest today is Reverend Gail Mariner from the Unitarian Universalist Santa Fe. You're back listening to Soul Searching on KSFR with Rabbi Neil Amswich from Temple Beth Shalom, uh, joined this evening by Reverend Gail Mariner from Unitarian Universalist Santa Fe. We've been uh, discussing metaphors of God and, and this idea that God is loving uh, and affirming of life. What does that mean when we die? Where Mm. is God there? Well, God, if if we understand that God is part of the matrix of the universe and part of the unfolding of what happens, evolution is also part of God. Life and death are also part of God. And so when the body dies, we acknowledge that the body dies and that our loved ones are no longer with us. And we let what happens next be a mystery. Mm. And we understand that death is absolutely essential in the way that the cosmos has unfolded. Uh, No evolution if nothing dies. No progress in culture if one generation doesn't yield to the next. Mm. So uh, we do celebrate Day of the Dead. We do have memorial service where we celebrate the lives of the people we are remembering. Um, but again, it's a it's a celebration of memory and holding on to the stories and letting what comes next just be whatever comes next. And we don't try to close that down or shape that understanding in any way in particular. Earlier on, you you mentioned the seven principles mm-hmm. um, that you affirm, and um, and I was looking through them. I, I find them fascinating. Um, 
one of them I really want to look at um, is uh, the the fourth one, which uh, uh, affirms and promotes this free and responsible search for truth and meaning. And and I guess we've been covering this in some sense. But does that mean uh, does well? What is truth essentially? Uh, is truth something that we each individually find for ourselves, or is there an absolute truth? Are there some things that are just universally true? Unitarian Universalists would say that our understanding of truth is always unfolding, that we encounter the cosmos and the holy through the lens of our preconceptions, and that as our lenses become more sophisticated or shift, we get different um, understandings or approximations of whatever it is that is out there that is real and true. The cosmos exists. Mm -hmm. I mean, we don't we don't fight over that. Um, we do, like any good scientist, understand that our stories are approximations. And we draw from a wide range of sources in terms of sort of triangulating on what is the most life-affirming um, understanding of what is true in this moment. You, you mentioned science and scientists mm -hmm. and the scientific method advancing and, and, and the, the idea that our, our viewpoints advance. Does that mean, do you believe that society always advances? No. So, so what happens? <laughs> so, so can truth go backwards? Can we go, can we revert in truth? I think we probably could. I mean, there have been dark ages before. There mm -hmm. may be dark ages again. Um, when we talk about that likeness to God, that spark of love and reason that is inherent in every person, we recognize that that spark can either be nurtured or it can be deformed. Mm -hmm. It can even be quenched on some occasions. And that's one of the ways we explain the presence of evil in the world, um, where human beings shape one another or create cultures that extinguish that divine light um, in their members. Mm -hmm. So while we generally understand that the arc of the moral universe bends towards justice, we do know that it's a struggle and that it's not um, a smooth arc towards the good. I, I gave a sermon on uh, Martin Luther King's line, the arc mm -hmm. of history bends towards justice. Actually, he got it from the Unitarians. Did he? Mm -hmm. Oh, very good. Okay, that's very helpful. Theater Thank Parker. you. Really? Oh, very good. Um, I appreciate that. I appreciate learning that. Um, I'm not convinced by that. Mm -hmm. I want to be. I really do. Part of my issue is how we define justice. Mm -hmm. You know, his definition of justice was very clear. But I think when we look at society today, it's not that some people are just and some are unjust. We, we, we merely have very different senses of what justice is. Mm -hmm. So then what does that mean for us? What does, does justice as a word, as a concept, actually mean anything if we can all have differing understandings of justice? It's a good question. And, and I don't think we're going to answer it adequately in the, minutes that we, <laughs> in the minutes that we have left. Um, one of the things we say when we use the, the phrase, the moral arc of the universe bends towards justice, is that it's our job to help it. It only bends if people of goodwill work to bend 
the cosmos towards justice or the moral arc of the universe towards justice. And we use this notion of the evolving or the unfolding health of the community, health of the ecosystem, health of the uh, culture, what is life-affirming, what increases diversity, what increases health, as sort of the measure as to whether we are bending towards justice or not. Let um, me, I, I really like that, but I want to push deeper on that, mm -hmm. which is who said that that's a good thing? Well, so we have a gathered community. And as we work, and if you look at the history of Unitarian Universalism, we keep making the circle bigger. The goal is to have everyone in the community weighing in on what is life-affirming so that a community of white male property owners mm -hmm. is not making a decision for women and people of color and ecosystems far, far away mm -hmm. about what is just for them, but the whole community. And so um, one of the interesting conversations at our General Assembly this past June was around when we uh, was around our principles, and the first one is to affirm and promote the inherent worth and dignity of every person. Mm -hmm. And there's a very lively debate going on right now about whether that word should change from person to being. Well, that was going to be one of my questions. Yes, yeah, so that we expand, but that expands the gathered community weighing in and discerning what is just to include uh, the non-human parts of the natural world, expanding the circle. Ultimately, the vision would be the vision of beloved community mm -hmm. is one that includes everything that lives. It's fascinating for me, you know, as, a, as a, an ecologist, an environmentalist, of, of course I support, and as a, a liberal rabbi, of course I support an increased diversity within community and within, um, within the natural world. If we include that, though, particularly, I guess, the, the non-human world, mm -hmm. Uh, which is voiceless in some sense, um, how it, it, it becomes almost impossible for us to live our lives if we're holding them of equal value, does it not? Because, for example, if I, you know, uh, I often say when, when I have these conversations, I drove here today. I don't know how many bugs I killed mm -hmm. on, on the way here. But if I truly held that they had the same inherent worth as I did, I'd probably have to walk, wouldn't I? So, so if we... Isn't our entire society predicated on the idea that actually humans have a different value or worth than so, the rest of nature? So I think we acknowledge that there is inherent worth, but we never say that the inherent worth of, of a butterfly is identical to the inherent worth of a human child. It's probably very clearly more important to the butterfly right. <laughs> and and my child's inherent worth is very clearly more important to me. So there is a balancing that we need to look at. Um, there's also the acknowledgement that in evolution, some animals are carnivores and some animals are omnivores and some are, are herbivores. And if you're a carnivore, to eat another animal doesn't mean you're not respecting its inherent worth. If you co-evolve together, um, that relationship 
is part of the matrix of creation, part of the mystery, part of what is holy, and it doesn't devalue this notion of worth. Is the carnivore really contemplating the inherent worth of its prey? No, but a human being is when they choose to be um, an omnivore and eat according to the range of foods that human beings have evolved to eat. I mean, it's difficult, isn't it? As a vegetarian myself, mm -hmm. um, one of the challenges I, I often have people say to me is, so you don't care about, you know, vegetables. Um, you, when we say being, you know, a plant is a being or, you know, is there, a, is there a level of consciousness at which point we say, no, there's life here or, or this has a sense of its own being. Its own self. So is it is if you increased the, the boundary mm -hmm. to the inherent worth of every being, is that to everything that is aware that it is a being? That's a good question, because I think there are folks within my denomination who would argue that um, really when we're talking about beings, we're also talking about ecosystems and watersheds, which, to, which as far as we know in the languages we're familiar with, don't have a sense of self. Mm. Um, but... Maybe that's just because we don't know how to listen. It's an, it, it's an interesting deep ecology perspective, isn't mm -hmm. it? About does an ecosystem, it has a sense of self, but is it aware of its sense of self? And it depends how we define awareness, doesn't it? In terms of conscious awareness or in terms of its constant flow of energy and so on. But then after a while, don't you tie yourself up in a huge knot at which point you know, ultimately, you need people to come together on the weekend to gather in community and to discuss. <laughs> yes. And if somebody brought in a chimpanzee and said, here, I, you know, this has the inherent worth of everyone here, you'd have quite a disrupted service, wouldn't you? Well, we do do a blessing of the animals. So right. I have had a donkey in the service before. Okay. But uh, I've never had a chimpanzee, so I can't answer that <laughs> one directly. I think there is... Um, there is not the expectation that other elements of creation ought to behave in ways that human beings can recognize as intelligent or as human. Mm. But that doesn't mean we can't um, offer to them our respect and affirm their dignity as living beings whether they would engage in our way of being in the world or would even be capable of that. And I think about research that's done into uh, cetitian whale community mm -hmm. and intelligence and more recently into uh, the interconnections and the communication between trees and different kinds of plants. Right. And uh, these inklings that we're starting to have because we're paying attention um, – that there's a whole lot more going on than we are aware of. And so because of that, it's pro it probably is best to err on the side of affirming and supporting other life forms rather than on the side of uh, staying insulated in our human circles. Thank you so much. I really, really do appreciate um, you being here. Um, you've been listening to Reverend Gail Mariner, uh, my guest from Unitarian Universalist Santa Fe. And really thank you for your profound exploration of this. Uh, there are many more of these principles that I hope that you'll come back and talk about um, because this has been really, truly um, uh, affirming for me and hopefully for those listening as well. So I uh, hope to have you back soon. 
I would like that very much. It's been a delightful conversation. Thank you. You've been listening to Soul Searching with Rabbi Neil Amswich from Temple Beth Shalom and from the Interfaith Leadership Alliance of Santa Fe. Until we return again in two weeks' time, keep searching.